John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessing episode 1291.EP0318, certificate number 28910. The Tesseract. Here is an ordinary square. Whoa, whoa, slow down, egghead. But suppose we extend the square beyond the two dimensions of our universe along the hypothetical z-axis there. Whoa! This forms a three-dimensional object known as a cube or a francohedron in honor of its discoverer. The Tesseract is a four-dimensional cube. It's a hypercube, which means it exists in more dimensions than we have. Uh, so the fourth dimension is time. For Einsteinian relativity to work, yeah. But you're saying dimen- there's there's another there's another dimension that can be the fourth dimension that isn't time? Potentially. The idea is we imagine what if there was a fourth spatial dimension? Oh. And it can be time. I mean, the, in a lot of ways, the math of it doesn't care if the fourth dimension is spatial or if it's time or if it's some other, it's just some other axis at, at right angles to all the others. I see. All right. I'm so, with you so far. So you have to understand that this is pretty hypothetical. So there's, a f- I did not bring a tesseract to show you because there's no way to do that in our paltry three-dimensional space. Well, this is one of the things, this is, I guess, one of the reasons that I uh, dropped out of math at a certain point wasn't that I didn't enjoy the the idea of things happening in theory, mm-hmm. or right, or, or in a in the mind space rather than in a uh, physical space. Right. But at a certain point, I I did um, get lost. I, I wasn't smart enough. You did want it to be real. Well, or or... I can sit and imagine an infinite number of possible dimensions. It's very hard for me to visualize a fourth dimension when you say that it can or can't be time, right? Like time, if you say, okay, it's a fourth, a four dimensional cube, there's a three dimensional cube and it's moving through time. Right. Like I go, sure. That's one way. Yeah. That's one way to visualize it. But, and that's valid. But if it's a fourth dimensional cube, which is just like in the same way that you take a two-dimensional piece of paper and turn it into a cube, then take a cube and draw eight extra lines and turn it into something in the fourth dimension. I, I guess I do find I have a, a paucity of, of imaginative like uh, reservoir. There. I think everyone does. The world is not full of people who can, you know, vividly imagine a four-dimensional space 
and you're just, you know, sitting in the short, <laughs> short bus oh, str- well. struggling in remedial three-dimensional math, John. Thank, I mean, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad I, you're making me feel pretty good. We now. live in a three-dimensional universe. It's one thing I'm almost sure about when I speak to our future listeners is that they also live in a three-dimensional universe. It's, Can we know it's, that? It's not certain, but, but what look. if they're time lords? <laughs> They're time lords, but they have plenty of time to waste listening to these recordings, I guess. Like it's, they can probably see them all at once. They, yeah, they've, already, right. they've already heard the end of this podcast. They're yeah. like, that was great. <laughs> love, love how you wrapped it all up, Ken and John. Um, but no, nobody can picture this. You know, we, we have to do it using tools like analogy. You know, like you said, the first dimension would be just length, you know, imagine a line. Right. And then for a second dimension, you would move that line into a plane. Like you'd take two line segments and you'd move one parallel to the other at right angles. And, Oh, you've got a square, right? You know, and then we can imagine that because we have those, then you would have to move, you know, turn the square into a cube. That's the third dimension. That's depth, I guess. Right. And you imagine another square coming out at right angles to the first one. And now you've got forming a cube, six squares. Now you've got six sides, right? You had, you know, you had one line, then four lines to make one square. Then you had six squares to make one cube. And now you're taking what? Six cubes? A tesseract is going to take eight cubes. Eight cubes. Oh, sure. Because four sides to a square, six sides to a cube, eight sides to a tesseract. Right. So just as you took six squares to make a cube, it's going to take eight cubes to make it. So each side, if you will, each cell of this shape is a cube. Mm -hmm. There's just no good way for the layperson. To picture that. Does it look like an everlasting gobstopper? <laughs> the Willy Wonka candy? Yeah. Have you looked at an everlasting gobstopper? It's, it looks sort of like what you're describing. Aren't they round? No. They, I think that they're... Uh, I'm talking about the cheapo ones that like they actually made as a tie-in to get at a movie. Like, Are you talking about the one in the Gene Wilder movie? Yeah. I feel like uh, an everlasting gobstopper is very tesseracty. Yes. So the ones in the Gene Wilder movie are not... Because if you buy an everlasting gobstopper at the multiplex, it's just like a jawbreaker, I think. Oh, that's you know, they're, too bad. They're just trying to you know, gull kids by stealing the name of Willy Wonka candy for their crappy rebranded. It's not, it's not just that they Nestle tried to make candy. everlasting gobstoppers like were in the film, but they kept uh, like being time transporter. Uh, <laughs> Every time they cubes. made one, it disappeared into a higher dimension. <laughs> a higher dimensional child reached down and grabbed it and ate it. So is it, it sounds like an MC Escher drawing. Does it require that it fold back in upon itself impossibly? Is that how the only way you can picture it? Yes. Uh, well, you know, when you draw it, so you can draw, think about an analogy. You can draw a cube in two dimensions, right? Yeah. I can take oh, my sure. pen on a piece of paper and draw a cube and it's not, you Make know, it, it look it, like a cube. Yeah. It's like if the light were shining through a cube, it would look like this. So what we draw, if we draw a tesseract, you know, if we were to build a tesseract out of toothpicks, it would be like if four dimensional light was shining through a tesseract, <laughs> this is the three dimensional shadow it would cast uh-huh. in our dimension <laughs> because what you have to understand about Tesseract is, you know, it's, it's moving, you know, its sides are coming out at you in a dimension that we don't have. Right. So, you know, when a square turns into a cube, you've added this new thing, depth, which is at right angles to all the things it has. Length right. and width. You know, somehow it's at right angles to everything. So every point in our three-dimensional space, you have to imagine that it also has some, some way that it can come out at you in right angles to everything. Like it's at right angles to depth and length and width. So sometimes, you know, they use words like in and out to describe that. Hmm. I mean, it's not, you can imagine it with a graph of it using color, for example. Like, have you ever seen a graph that maps four different variables? You know, 
you can do three of them spatially with the X axis, sure, the Y axis and the Z axis, but then there's no more letters. You know, we, we were very, we didn't plan ahead. You know, Z is the last letter. There's no 27th letter for this fourth axis, but you could do it with color. You know, you could take that shape and then color some of it in warm colors and some of it in, in cool colors. And that could represent a different kind of a contour in a fourth dimension. Right. Are you starting to see it? No, no, no. I, I, I see it. I'm, I'm trying to, well, maybe you can explain to me why a tesseract is important. Uh, why, first of all, why it belongs in the omnibus, because we are going to be maybe the only reference tool that survives. This is it. We're the only show in town. And so why, but why, I mean, a tesseract is a classic example of a thought experiment but does it have a practical application? You're asking, is there a fourth dimension? Like, are there tesseracts? And we just can't see them with our three-dimensional brains. Or does visualizing a tesseract help us visual, help us understand, is it a metaphor for something that we can grasp? I mean, usually when I think of something in the fourth dimension and I picture that as time, I can at least grok that I do have a fourth dimension and I can try and ride this cube through time, the two of us together riding through time, but to imagine it just as another mathematical plane or dimension. Right. Now, what am I doing now? Where, how am I riding this cube? Well, there are reasons why, um, for mathematical consistency, it might be good to have the higher dimension. Um, and that's why Albert Einstein, when he created special relativity, the math wasn't working out. That's why he needed that fourth dimension. That's why, that's where our modern idea of space-time um, comes from. In 1884, this um, theologian and schoolmaster named Edwin Abbott Abbott wrote a book called Flatland. Are you familiar with Flatland? <laughs> it's a book about... That wasn't, wasn't that a, the movie where, uh, where Kiefer Sutherland like, kept killing himself <laughs> little by little? <laughs> Flatlanders? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a movie, it's a book that takes place on a two-dimensional plane. And the funny thing is, Abbott considered this to be a great way to make fun of Victorian social classes because everyone there is a different shape. You know, uh, day laborers are triangles, gentlemen are squares. You know, as you get higher on the social ladder, you get more and more sides on your polygon. You know, and, <laughs> and you know, the noblemen are pentagons or hexagons or whatever. And the uh, priests are circles, you know, the perfect shape. Mm -hmm. um, women are a line and they have to make a weird noise when they're coming at you because otherwise if they're coming right at you, you might think they're a point. So, so women are only... Yeah, you know, this is based on Victorian England. One dimensional. You know, yeah. W women are the, well, they're, they're yeah, they're one dimensional. Women are the, the lowest creatures in Flatland. Wow. And the book, it's interesting because, you know, for the thought experiment reasons you were talking about, our hero, a square, um, has a dream about a one dimensional space. And he, he, he imagines himself talking to a line who cannot imagine a world of two dimensions. And he just thinks that's silly. You know, of course the world has two dimensions. Everyone can imagine both length and width, he tries to describe width to the line and the line just doesn't get it. But then our friend Square meets a three-dimensional object who happens to be passing through his plane. So a sphere moves through his plane. And to him, what this looks like right. is, a, is a dot. That turns into a circle. It gets into a circle and then and shrinks away the as it moves away, you know. And that's what it would look like if a three-dimensional form manifested itself in a plane. It, it gets, the math gets harder if you imagine it a different shape. Like imagine a cube moving through a plane. Yeah, sure. All of a sudden you're. If it comes down face on, it's easy, right? A square appears, ah, square disappears. Right. And you're like, what the hell was that? How did it get in here? But it's a dot and then it's three dots moving away from each other. Right. So it's a, it, it's a dot that turns into a triangle 
The triangle, I think, gets bigger and then truncated on the ends into a hexagon. And then the sides of the hexagon bulge out like it morphs into a diamond and then back into a hexagon, back into a triangle and disappears. And you're like, I'm in an enclosed space. Right. How did it get in here? But right. the fact is it can move at right angles to our dimension. Like we look down on Flatland and we can look into all the houses. You know, the, the square is shocked that the sphere can look down onto his <laughs> dimension. So, but this, other than just being like something to, to uh, order a couple of pizzas and sit around and Whoa. look at our fingernails over, like, what do we use? I'm mean, obviously space time has allowed us to conceive of so many things, right? Right. Time, it's, it's a way of, it's a way of trying to understand what gravity is and measure gravity and to think about and it and it has precipitated all this time travel speculation and and it's like fun to monkey around with but space time we really have proved through astronomical observations yes there's there's evidence for special and general relativity but like and, tesseractian four dimensions where does the rubber meet the road all purely theoretical so far let me introduce you to another guy named Charles Howard Hinton who's one of the most, to me, interesting mathematicians of the uh, 19th century. He was the son of a British, I think, uh, teacher, schoolmaster named James Hinton, who loved, who was very interested in um, free love, you know, female nudity, polygamy. You know, this guy had a sort of a coterie of uh, female associates and was sleeping with all of them. This is Circa when? This would be the sort of, yeah, early Victorian era. This oh. is 19th century Britain. It's interesting how these ideas, you know, come back. Like the, he sounds like a character from the 60s. Right. And he but, thinks he's an original thinker. He had this great idea. What if I could just have sex with lots of women? Wait a minute. Do you get it? Do Hold you... on. <laughs> Stop everything. <laughs> Needle scratch sound. So um, Charles Howard Hinton's mother told him that his dad had once said, Christ was the savior of men but I am the savior of women and I don't envy him a bit. So, so Hinton grows up in this kind of weird sex cult. And in fact is later um, fired from his boarding school position because he is keeping a second family, a wife and twins in a hotel and telling everyone it's his twin sister. Really? So you can take the sex cult out of the, you can take the mathematician out of the sex cult, but you cannot take the sex cult out of the math. So what you're saying is that Hinton maybe wasn't the savior of women. <laughs> His dad thought he was. Yeah. Uh, the women, you know, their voices are lost to history, as is so often the case. Um, so he's disgraced at his boarding school. He flees to Yokohama, Japan, where he winds up teaching middle school. He takes his first wife to Yokohama, Japan, where he teaches at a middle school and eventually winds up at Princeton. Um, at Princeton, this is one of my favorite stories, he gets very into the baseball team in the 1880s. And uh, using his, uh, his knowledge of math and physics, he creates this gunpowder cannon that will just fire a baseball out of a muzzle at speeds around 70 miles an hour. And he shows it to the baseball team and scares the hell out of them. It's the first pitching machine. He invented the pitching machine. Wow. This, but, it, but, but like gunpowder power? Yeah. Like the ball <laughs> would actually come out city because he's literally... <laughs> firing balls at their heads and he would put little um, rubber covered fingers on the muzzle. So, so you could simulate a curveball huh. or whatever. The players hated it. He gave them a foot pedal so that they could at least, yeah. they could pull the trigger. They still didn't like it. I think there were injuries yeah. uh, in some stories. That's what eventually gets him bounced from Princeton is that he, <laughs> is that he damages the baseball team. Uh, he damages people on scholarship and they won't put up with that. 
But he had this very interesting inner life. He was always fascinated with what he called metageometries, you know, higher levels of space that only he could picture. And in a mystical way, mm-hmm. um, he created this thought space in his head. He, he took a, th- uh, let's see, a, a yard by a yard by a yard. So 36 inches in each direction. And he created this grid in his head of however many cubes that is, 36 by 36 by 30. It's like 46,000 cubes. And he assigned each one a two-word name with two Latin words. And he learned all these places by their names. So he could imagine this whole 3D space, but not get caught up on ideas of left or right or up or down. It was all about which box it was and its relationship to the other boxes. And then he would uh, memorize 24 different orientations for each box, you know, the, the different ways you can orient a cube. So he was essentially building a four-dimensional retina in his head. You know, we have this flat part of our eye that projects 3D things onto it and we can understand them as three-dimensional. He was trying to build a space, that, a 3D space that he could use to imagine fourth-dimensional forms. He was essentially rewiring his brain to work in a higher dimension. Huh because he's a really weird guy. So now this is, I guess this is a good question. Is it, is that something he was doing because he was weird uh, or something he was doing that he was discovering? He coined the word tesseract from the Greek tesseres actines, four rays, because every point in a tesseract comes out in four dimensions, you know, in in a cube, there's three dimensions, each at right angles to each other, a tesseract he's imagining every point having four rays blossoming from it, which oh. is, you know, impossible for us. But yeah, he thought, you know, for him, it was a mystical experience, but he was convinced that he was onto something. He thought that there was some kind of 4D hyper thickness in the universe. And this is pre-Einstein. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, uh, Flatland was a bust when it came out in the 1880s. Then suddenly, in the 1920s, Einstein's on the cover of Time magazine talking about relativity, and suddenly... Flatland's back in print, this time not as a social satire, but as a mathematical treatise, like, ah, this is how we're going to imagine higher dimensions. And Hinton was convinced of the same thing. He thought that there were certain properties of the universe, of electromagnetism and, uh, you know, molecules that could only be understood if we could just get our minds around fourth dimensionality. So do you think that he was, I mean, is this an example of scientific inspiration, like discovery? literally discovering a new land or is it a person sort of tripping out on a thought experiment happening upon something that later on will be analogized as a description of actual something in actual space? Yeah. There's nothing he could actually discover. You know, there's no observation he could make in a three-dimensional universe just with the basis of his senses. Right. That would, uh, that would make him think, ah, there's 40 hyper thickness here. I must, investigate further because he could be just sitting there going like oh in a fourth dimension you could be married to 40 people there'd be colors you couldn't even imagine man like we don't even have them i mean i guess this is one of the big questions i have about theoretical math is obviously like math is the language of the language that god wrote the universe in and we are just sort of tugging at the hem of that garment but there is like truth in the universe there is an actual set of conditions right we can test them right uh and so much of this stuff is out in the realm of weak the the math works out therefore yeah, this is mathematically consistent so therefore good it, news. it does des- it must describe something 
extant in the however the universe is constructed. I think there are lots of things we can we could extrapolate that uh, you know would just be pointless hypothesis. Hmm. Um, but Hinton may have been onto something. Can you be married to forty different women in a four four dimensional space? Well, let's see. <laughs> I can. Uh, yeah, I can move in a right. I can move at right angles to my. Well, if my spouse is also higher dimensionality. Sure. If there are four rays coming out from her, I can't get away with anything. But yeah. if it's like flatland and she's just three dimensional, sure. But I, by virtue of being a man, have this <laughs> extra dimension, <laughs> then I can just leave my study and she'll have no idea. She'll just. It'll just seem like a point passing through her. How sphere. did you? How did you leave the house? Well, I passed at right <laughs> angles to it in all directions, honey. Um, I guess in modern conceptions of string theory. You know, string theory is, again, this totally out there hypothetical thing, which, you know, might reconcile some of the problems we have joining quantum mechanics to our regular kind of Newtonian mechanics. Right. Again, all hypothetical. But for some of the math to work out, you need higher spatial dimensions in these things. There's a version of string theory where you need 10 dimensions. There's one where you need 11, you need 10 and time. And there's one where the math works best with 26. And we don't know if any of these are right or if these are just, you know, intriguingly elegant mathematical solutions. I, I wish I understood math better to figure out how the person who found that the math worked best if there were 26 dimensions, like watching them test. Well, 20, does it work in 23? Got nope. bad news, gentlemen. <laughs> 25 failed. 25. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. God damn it, Jim. <laughs> There's got to be a solution. What if they skipped 26? They're like, well... Let's try 27, you know, it'll, it'll be faster if we only do the odd numbers. They'd never know. It's interesting to me, uh, doing a little bit of research myself on Hinton, that his wife was the daughter of George Boole, the founder of Boolean logic. Boolean logic, Boolean algebra. I don't know if, I don't know if people commonly know about George Boole's work, but if you work in computers, Boolean logic is very important because Boolean logic only has two states, on or off. It's, it's something that's true or false. And, you know, as you probably know, our entire microcomputer revolution is built on that idea that a bit is either Ones one or it's zero. The, right. cir the circuit's either connected or it's not. And so computer programmers use Boolean logic to do everything, whether at a high level or a, a low level they're not aware of. And yeah, he married into this, uh, this big logician family. And I think even his dad had probably weird ties. I'm sure his dad slept with every female bool he could get his hands on. Can you imagine the dinner table conversation around this household? I wonder if they were normal people. I can't imagine they were. I mean, when you think about living in the Victorian era where social constraints on normals were so pronounced, like to our futurelings, they may not understand how much in our own era we feel that uh, we are somewhat liberated from the constraints of a hundred years the ago, silly, arbitrary constraints. Yeah. We no longer have to keep our elbows off the table when we're eating. We no longer have to not pick our noses in public. You we, can speak to someone you haven't been properly introduced to by a third party, right? You can speak to your betters. An unmarried woman can be accompanied by a man in public, but it just means we're not aware of the codes we have that are probably just as strict. Right. You know? We have we have a, a huge system of coded expectation. We're just not aware. Like a cashier at a store says one weird thing to me and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Oh my. The rest of the day you're walking around like, what did you mean by that? Our relationship is built on thousands of invisible <laughs> rules, which you have violated, ma'am. But 
but for instance, now, if you were to go to a cocktail party and say, well, my wife and I don't really believe in marriage and uh, we like to sit around and talk about four dimensions in time, uh, people would be like, yawn, you're boring. Whereas in Victorian era, you might, you at least would be confirming in yourself a feeling that you were really pretty far out people. Right. And you'd probably have to hide it. I mean, if you wanted to hold down a job. Well, you can't, you can't even invent a pitching machine without getting bumped out of Princeton, <laughs> let alone if you're like, because I'm sure that they were also, there were angles where they were like, let's try out nudism or let's try out, maybe they had a sex swing in the living room, for instance. History is silent on whether they had a four-dimensional <laughs> sex swing that could put your limbs at right angles to all known dimensions. You can. Well, so Tesseract, well, wait a minute. Let's take a break and, and uh, we'll come back and talk about this in a second. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so tesseract like a lot of mathematical concepts has been taken out of context and used in a pop culture formulation in a couple of different ways. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been bastardized just it, because it's a cool sounding word basically. Right. And it sounds very Star Trek-y like somebody's going to put a Tesseract into the hyperspace confabulator. We've got a Tesseract in the warp core. But Tesseract really resonates for me because it was a major plot device in A Wrinkle in Time by Ma Madeline Lengel. Ah, children's literature classic. Right. A book that was sort of foisted on me at too young an age Usually in the 70s, when you had a kid that was a little bit precocious, the educational idea at the time was to give that kid something really hard for them to- This will shut him up. To really struggle with. So exactly. It's really more like, he'll leave me alone for two hours yeah. and so, I can watch the game. So the kid doesn't, you know, the kid is bored uh, reading like Pokey Little Puppy. And so you're like, oh, you think you're smart? Here, read A Wrinkle in Time, second grader. <laughs> and the book really traumatized me because it's a pretty complicated science fiction novel with a lot of, with a lot of concepts. Um, but Tesseract is a big part of uh, well, it's used to describe basically time travel. Or yeah, the, she, she uses the word incorrectly, I yeah. believe, right? Well, it's, it, she's using it to just describe what we think of as Einsteinian fourth dimensional, uh, a wrinkle, literally a wrinkle in time. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the title. It's the title MacGuffin, right, right, of the book. It's a, and for her, it's fifth dimensional. You know, because she thinks, well, the fourth dimension is clearly time, but what if there was another dimension in space? And we could pass through that to bypass our own limitations. And so that's how these people get across the galaxy or the universe, whatever, right? They, right. they go through a tesseract. It's, 
on Star Trek, it would be like a wormhole. Or it's a, a wormhole. Or a warp something, warp field or whatever. Yeah, that's what ended. I think Gene Roddenberry decided to call it, yeah, right, a worm. He didn't, he didn't coin wormhole. That, that came later. Yeah, I think wormhole is actually a theoretical physical construct from the, I don't know, 70s maybe? Where it, maybe, it, what if it was possible that there were these weird tunnels in reality and you could use them to... I think it's a, you know, we want to go to other planets. We can't. Right. What weird theoretical <laughs> physics human event that might someday get me in an alien solar system, damn it, you know. Do you remember the uh, the 1980 Disney film Black Hole? Oh, clearly. Yes, it was. It's an interesting thing because it's 12 years after 2001 A Space Odyssey. I guess it's the success of Star Wars. It's yeah. got cute robots, but it really does have some sort of, you know, mind F kind of a 2001 thing going on. It is unavoidable through space, swallowing everything in its path, radio waves, light. Are you programmed to speak? Even planets and stars. The Black Hole. I was the target audience for it, right? I was 12 years old when it came out, and I was really into it. But it did not have the cultural traction that so many other sci-fi products did. Like, it kind of came and went. People don't refer to it now that was a low time for disney you know they were chasing every fad yeah apple dumpling and herbie sequels but so is there any pop culture appropriation of tesseract that gets it right well salvador dolly uh-huh. was interested in the tesseract have you ever seen his painting uh it's a crucifixion he is oh so- i have it hanging over my fireplace <laughs> so you know how you can unfold a cube into one of these, you know, into six squares, yeah. you know, a line of four and then two coming off the sides. You know, kids do this and they can fold it together and make a cube, right? right. Like paper dolls. Uh, you know, theoretically, you could do that with a Tesseract as well. You could unfold it into eight cubes. Right. And then if you could somehow refold those through higher space, bam, you'd get a Tesseract if you could somehow get everything parallel. And there's a Salvador Dali painting where he actually paints a Tesseract as a crucifix because it is cross, cross-shaped when you lay out the cells. Um, because, you know, he was interested in, you know, surreal things, putting things that cannot exist into our everyday lives. Right. And one of those was what if there was a four dimensional object just sitting here, what would it look like? And so does the, does this appear in, in Escher? Like, is this a, who, who, what other artists were using four dimensions in the work that they were producing? I would say hardly anyone because. The problem with four-dimensional object is that, you know, an artist is going to try to be representing it in two, probably, unless they're a sculptor. So then, you you know, then you're one degree further. Now it's a two-dimensional shadow of a three-dimensional shadow of a four-dimensional object. And crucially, you can't have it move. You know, painting is not kinetic. You know, when we talked about our, it was a lot easier to picture the three-dimensional creatures passing through Flatland when we could animate it a dot that turns into a circle. You know, we're inside this, enclosed in this room here, but a fourth dimensional creature could enter at any time, John. I don't want to alarm you. Uh-huh. Uh, enter and not be perceptible to us. Um, yes. I mean, right now the, they could be looking in from their higher dimension. You know? Right, right, right. They're, they're at right angles to us so that, you know, the ceiling does not bother them. Right. They can look in from out. You know, let's, let's call the fourth dimension in and out instead of up and down. So they can, they, they can look out. And if they were to move in to our, what to them is a plane, into our three-dimensional space, you know, we would see sort of the ana- the ana- uh, analogy of the flatland thing. We'd see a dot 
that broadens into a tetrahedron and then maybe into an octahedron, like an eight-sided D&D Boy, dice. that would be very confusing. Or a hexagonal prism, you know, and then it would sort of narrow. Yeah, and as it moved in its own dimensions, you know, it would do things that were impossible, you know. Sides would become mirrors of themselves. Things that weren't sides that we didn't think were connected would connect, you know. As it moved and we saw the three-dimensional shadow of it, we might be able to start to grok in yeah. your 70s parlance, what, <laughs> like what some of the connections were here. Right. And well, what, I mean, if I, if I had a dollar for every time a hexagonal prism appeared in my room and, and morphed around and disappeared. I'm pretty straight edge, so I never, I never get to enjoy any of that kind of stuff. Lately, I've been eating a piece of chocolate cake kind of late in the day, too late in the day to really have a big piece of chocolate cake, kind of right before bed. And I've been waking up in the middle of the night pretty convinced that there are fourth dimensional beings passing through my passing through my bedroom space so your mind expanding drug is now costco chocolate cake super super hyper refined sugar and chocolate (laughs) yeah right and it is it is allowing me to somewhat to time travel if you want to see hyperspace you got to like really you know you got you got to have hyperglycemia too hyper everything hyperactivity hyperglycemia it's all the same thing but yeah, it's, and that's what Hinton thought he was getting at. Like he thought he was, a, he was getting to a point where he could actually picture this stuff. Right. He thought he was adding a fourth dimension to his mental image. And uh, was he trying to explain it? I mean, was he publishing papers? Was he active in the mathematical community? Was he regarded as a heretic? Yeah, no, he was, he was publishing multiple works, you know, that, and they, some of them had mystical names, but like, a, you know, a new era of thought or whatever. But, uh, but some of them had very straightforward names, like what is the fourth dimension, you know, uh, where, uh, where he would try to explain. But that you know, sounds like something, a, a pamphlet, somebody <laughs> right. would hand me in front of a train station. <laughs> what, what is the fourth? And that's the funny thing, you know, that's probably how he came off. Like, you know, the, the, the line between mathematical genius and kook is apparently very thin. And I don't think any of the people at the train station today have actually grasped some higher level of math that computers can't do. But in that day, it was possible. But this was also the era of phrenology and eugenics. I mean, there were a thousand uh, scientists, quote unquote, with a theory that described the universe and described the, the way that the, I guess, the fabric of the world is, is laid out. Like how, how was Hinton distinguished from his, his crank peers? Yeah, you know who loved Hinton and his work was um like Madame Blavatsky. You know who that is? The Theosophists. Oh wow! Like uh, there were branches of her school of occult science or whatever that loved Hinton. They read all his pamphlets, and they what they loved about it was that they thought he was a kook like them. <laughs> like, like they were like, sweet, there's a fourth dimension. That's clearly the spirit realm. You know, nice. this all makes sense. He can picture this fourth dimension, and so can we. That's that's the occult spaces that that our rituals reach. You know, sure. So this they is loved why. This well, so. So did uh, Houdini try to debunk him? I wonder if Houdini ever meant met Hinton. Uh, Boy, that's some fanfic right there. Hinton could have fired a, uh, a baseball right into Houdini's gut at 70 <laughs> miles an hour and killed the guy. Let's, uh, let's hear it from our friends and we'll be right back. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So Hinton was a man of his time. Uh, it, I mean, this was, this was obviously like also the era of technological leap, right? With electric light and this locomotive and well, sure. I guess that locomotive was a little bit before, but like the car, the airplane, it's all happening. Yeah, every, and everyone's thinking, yeah, the future's coming, you right. know, this is it. So that must've been exciting to them, I guess. Or, <sighs> can't or, imagine. Or maybe Hinton's work wouldn't have even have seemed like a piece of that. Like he would have seemed just like a crank. Everybody else is producing, you know, steam powered factories that we can actually see and lower the price of wool or whatever. I imagine that the that this other realm of intellectual like foment would have been just as exciting because there were a lot of not just social theories, but there was a sense in that fin de Sacal era that we were embarking on a new world of everlasting peace and order and beauty in art. And I, I could I feel like Tesseract would be a thing that artists especially would try to latch onto as they were, you know, because it's beautiful in its way. Like there's an element of beauty in understanding it. Sure. And I, and I think maybe you can get little glimpses of it, you know, and it, it reminds me that, you know, if, if you, people who study the higher geometries do say they eventually do start to get an intuitive sense of this thing they can't actually manipulate in our reality, mm -hmm. you know? And it really reminds me of the way, you know, religious people or, or spiritual mystical people talk about that little flash of the divine, you know, where they almost can't communicate it to others. They can't convince me of their beliefs, but to them, it became so clear right. that, uh, you know, that now they can't do without it. Right. The varieties of religious experience. Sure. But for me, you know, the only thing that works is, uh, the analogy of it. Like yeah. I, I, you know, I haven't spent the years retraining my brain like Charles Howard Hinton did, <laughs> but it's weird how much of our own, um, experience does have to come through analogy, you know, not just in higher dimensions, but like in all kinds of fields, like, you know, you, John Roderick famously does not like potatoes. I don't like potatoes. This is a fact that the future probably knows already about you. It's a, a future, a future Ling, you know, may not understand because they may live entirely on potato starch. That's probably a huge taboo in their culture. Or it may they be... They probably worship potatoes. It may be... The a, crop that saved them from, a, the, a situation. from the night of the falling stars. It may be a, 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 a wild stallion situation where my hatred of potatoes means that in the future, potatoes are, are totally a taboo. You've become so influential that you were able to, to ban them. People are just like potatoes. Once you, you once you consolidate power, that's the first thing to go. But, but how is that? A, well, a, I can't, analogous? I can't understand it at all. Like to me, I'm like, no way, man, hash browns, French fries, you know, potatoes are delicious. It's funny when you say I, you don't like potatoes. This happens to me all the time. When you say like, I don't, I just don't like potatoes. 
people's response is always to list all the ways you can prepare a potato. <laughs> really? Hash browns? Hey, have you thought of this? Fries, potato chips. They just want to run down and verify. Like They think there's a small chance you're going to be like, wait, 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 French fries or potatoes? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, yeah. all this time. Have you ever tried a potato milkshake? <laughs> you know what? That's not a thing. <laughs> so have you fried them? Like, yeah. these are better Have you ever increased. put butter on one? <laughs> Yes. They think you've just been like very incompetent about eating potatoes. Well, they first want to make sure that I'm not just talking about like eating a raw potato. <laughs> you take a bite of it like an apple. Yeah. And you're like, pass. Yeah. Nobody likes that. No, no, no. I don't like potato. Not just potatoes, but I don't like potato. See, and to me, that's as weird as a four dimensional shape because I'm living in a soul that, you know, just loves potato. You know, to me, that's the taste of home, you know, right. give me a side of some potato starch with this. Right meal. But you did famously grow up in a potato. So it is really the taste of (laughs) as many of my fans know my (laughs) Idaho childhood. Um, so for me to even understand that I have to think there must be something, some vegetable I dislike. And what is that vegetable? Uh, for example, I don't love tomatoes. What? To you, a tomato is delicious. Yeah, but there's, but there's a, there's a difference between not loving a tomato and hating potatoes. So you won't eat potato in anything. If something has a here, here slice of potato. Here we go. Here we go. Have you tried potatoes with sour cream? Have you tried them <laughs> chopped up? What about like these bags of chips? They they slice them very thin uh, and like, they fry them. It's like the green eggs and ham book. Like I know people that'll just love a slice of tomato in their salad and I'll kind of eat around it because I, the taste the taste of tomato, I guess, you know, in combination with other things on a sandwich, I can hack it, I guess. Yeah, no, this is a bad analogy. Tomatoes are an unfinished food, right? They're, they are a fruit that's not done cooking. No, there are plenty of people that love tomatoes. There are plenty yeah. of people that will take a bite of tomato. But what I'm saying is you don't hate them. You'll eat spaghetti sauce. You'll eat, uh, you'll eat tomato soup. You'll... Like all analogies, <laughs> it's imperfect. Your, your weird food aversion exists on a higher fourth dimensional plane than mine. But the only way I can get into your head is to be like, oh, when John tastes a potato, he gets some kind of physical and emotional and psychological reaction that's kind of like mine like when I have to have a slice of, when I see a slice of tomato on a salad, you know, like just seeing it sort of bums me out. Tasting it makes me think this might be better without it. Um, No, this is a bad analogy. There's got to be something in the world that everyone else likes that you can't stand. It doesn't have to be food. The way you feel about potatoes is the way I feel about racism. (laughs) Just nobody likes racism. It really chaps my hide (laughs) when I see injustice. It's the worst. But even think about even something like uh, even something like the golden rule, you know, like many religions have this idea that, you know, just it's okay. Like the way to be a a good person in the world is to just treat other people the way you want to be treated. And it really is just harnessing the power of analogy to say your brain is not capable of being good. You cannot do unselfish things. The only way you're going to imagine to be able to do an impression to cast a shadow of an ethical person on the world is for you to do this analogy in your head and think, uh, well, if I were him, I would want that person to do that to me. So the selfish thing would be that. But if I just reverse it, then I'll do that, which would be the selfish thing for him, which would be the unselfish thing for me. Right. You know, and you give the impression of being an ethical person. What you've really done is make an analogy <laughs> in your head that lets you do an, Im- yeah, an impersonation of it. You yeah. know, you're, you're like a computer who's been programmed to be good. And that's just a lot of how we see the world through analogy. And it doesn't make it invalid. It's just a limitation of the squishy stuff in our brains and how it fires and what we can make it do and what we can't. I mean, that's, that's a major criticism of 
of a lot of the sort of social structures that constrain us, right? That it isn't that we are good. It isn't that there is even good as much as it is that there are these rules that we blindly follow. But it almost doesn't matter. Nobody's like, the golden rule is BS. I should do things that just make me feel bad because I'm so, you know. You obviously weren't at the WTO protests because <laughs> that's exactly what the anarchists were saying. <laughs> but um, yeah, but I think Tesseracts are important for that reason. There's something that might be real, might not. We'll never know. Hinton actually thought his brain fibers maybe did have some kind of fourth dimensional thickness that he couldn't see. And if he could just exercise them enough, they would get buffer in that fourth dimension. Huh. And uh-huh. he would start uh-huh. to achieve a higher consciousness. To him, it was very real. Well, so I we're guess never going to know if it's real or not. My question is: Now, is Hinton regarded as a, a forward-thinking mathematician, or is he thought of as a uh, science fiction theosophist who, you know, was trying to get his fourth dimension buff? It, it, does he live now in a space that is full of Tao of physics? Like hipster Buddhists, or does he live in a space where the Boolean computer desk jockeys are like, yeah, that's our guy? He's not like Bool because there was no, you know, if if immediately four dimensional warp engines had taken off in our time, maybe we would all talk about Hinton coils and Hinton fields and <laughs> gotta gotta activate the Hinton engine. <laughs> Let's go to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> but uh, but no, we're living in that universe for Bool, but not for Hinton. I think he's almost a forgotten figure today. Uh, he died in, I think, 1907 in the middle of a speech. He was speaking at the Society of Philanthropic Inquiry in Washington, D.C., and they asked him to get up and give a toast on female philosophers. <laughs> and he stands up with his glass uh, to speak on female philosophers and then just keels over and dies. Wow. So What a way to go. So he went out in amazing fashion and nobody ever knew what his thoughts on female philosophers were. I hope that when I die... I hope I'm a very old and happy individual many, many, many years hence. And I hope I'm asked to get up and say a few words on the topic of female philosophers and then die. I hope I get the, I hope I get through the joke or whatever, you know, I don't know. I I hope people are laughing and then I go, I want history to record that they don't know what I was about to say. (laughs) Maybe he was just going to say something terrible. (laughs) Women can't be philosophers. And here's why. Women philosophers. (laughs) What's next? Women doctors. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe he was struck down before he was about to do something terrible. But interestingly, his legacy did live on. He had several children from multiple multiple simultaneous illegal marriages, right. as we've heard. Here, here. Um, uh, and uh, with his, I think he had maybe three children with his wife, the one he went to Japan with. And he used to do a game with his kids. If your dad is some kind of metageometrical wacko, this is the kind of thing you have to do. He built a big bamboo grid. Uh, in their yard yeah, and he would have the kids treat it like it was like a Cartesian system where he would, he would give them coordinates. He would be like X equals three, Y equals six, Z equals negative one, go. And the kids would race to climb to that part of the bamboo grid. He sounds like a fun dad. Wouldn't you love that? Well, and it seems like, right. He was, he was like so many of our social theories. He was trying to inculcate in his own children what he imagined we were missing, right? It was. He's thinking, what if I'd been raised in a math cult instead of some weird free love cult? Yeah, right. You know? if, if if my kids are uh, grow up thinking in four dimensions, these kids could be the future. Wow! Like he thought he was going to create these um, amazing new revolutionaries by teaching them four, and he kind of did, because his son Sebastian grew up and remembering the fun he had swinging around on bamboo as a kid, he took out a patent for a similar structure made of metal, 
and created a company to make them, and he called it the Jungle Gym. Sebastian Hinton, what? Uh, inspired by his dad's higher geometries, invented the Jungle Gyms that no. are still on playgrounds today. And did it make him a fortune where his father's work uh, just drained his bank account? I, I hope it did. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, that's if, so wonderful. If, you know, the, the shadow that higher, the Tesseract cast in our dimension turns out to be a jungle gym. So we, wow, we all have been touched by the Hintons. If not for uh, Charles Hinton's weird pamphlet, we would never have, could have like fallen off the monkey bars and broken our noses at recess. That's spectacular. And that concludes the Tesseract. Entry number 1291.EP0318. Certificate number 28910. In the unlikely event, futurelings, that social media still exists, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles, personally, were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter. Hopefully a long, long dead social media platform, but one almost certainly that will survive millennia. Uh, I also have an Instagram account where you can see my selfies and pictures where I blur out uh, the face of my child, uh, also at John Roderick. Um, if you'd like to send us an email because you are a time-warping, tesseract-riding futureling. If you have access to four-dimensional digital communication. That's right. Somehow. Come into our plane long enough to send us an email at theomnibuspodcast at gmail.com. Future listeners, uh, we speak to you from your distant past. We're a voice from the dust talking about things you don't even understand, baseball pitching and surrealist painting. Um, we don't know how long any of that survived. To us, it's a civilization. To you, it's a long distant memory. It certainly seems that that civilization is drawing to a close. May end any day now. We have no idea. If the worst does come soon, this would be our last recording. But we hope that destiny will allow us to continue on a little longer and to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>